Gentlemen, welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. Made our own, we come back and collect. I shall resign the presidency. Being back here, it is not easy. Hello, and welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Adam Kautzer, and with me today, as he is always, is your other co-host... Scott Phillips. And today we are doing another one-off. Uh, we are actually talking about Spike Lee's The uh, Five Bloods. We're a little late with it, but we figured that everybody was going to like throw all of their thoughts, their instant thoughts about it to you right away. But rather than do that, um, it feels like this movie needed to be ruminated on just a little bit because it's a big big, big movie, not just in length, but just uh, lots of ideas, uh, lots going on in it. And just kind of like to be able to like, kind of sit there and stew on it. Like, like we used to do. I don't, I think that people are just so eager to like instantly, um, create opinions about things that really shouldn't have opinions created about them right away. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You know, like old school film criticism, you know, you might see a movie a week or two weeks before it was going to come out. Yep. And so then you had, you know, a week to 10 days to think about it, write your review. Um, you know, maybe even if you were lucky, see it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and these days I think it's, you know, the embargo game that causes that problem. You know, it's like, it's like, we're not sure that we have the absolute, you know, biggest hit ever on our hands. So we won't let you see it until, uh, the Wednesday before the Friday that it comes out. And so it has kind of led to this culture among critics and viewers of like instant reaction. No, absolutely. And, and then people kind of feel entrenched and change their mind later. So there's not a whole lot of like depth of thought going into some of this stuff. It's just like, here's my immediate take on this film. And then, yeah, even after re-seeing it and thinking about it, I still stand by that take. And so you don't get, in my opinion, you know, a whole lot of thought uh, unless you're seeing it at a film festival months before your review is going to post. But aside from that exception, which doesn't really exist in 2020, nope. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's snap judgment. No, absolutely. Um, it's funny because um, I have a review coming out fairly soon of The Beach House, and I think it benefited me waiting a month and a half. Like I like, and to think about like it felt like it was longer, but it felt like it was so nice to be able to not only like see it once, ruminate on it, talk to you about it, and then see it again. Um, yeah. because it formed a very different, like it didn't form a different opinion. It just solidified certain things that I liked about it. And so like my, my review is like, 
like I uh, like it's only like I think it's like 400 words, but it's very concise. It very it says exactly what I want it to say. Um, and it it's it like, you know, this is going to post after the review post. I, I love that movie. Like it's like of the 2020 films, it's it's in my top 10 right now um, because it's such a strong film. But I also had a long time to ruminate on it and really think about it because that movie allows for the space to, uh, to to think about it like good films like this one like the five bloods and we'll get back to that um really honestly gives you the space to think about it. it's like like yeah i liked it like you know that's your instant reaction but it's also it's a sucker punch it's a gut punch of a movie so it's like give me some time with it give me a little bit of time with it let me kind of really kind of think about what how i feel about it like or like in, in not in like like not in any way that's like uh not any way that that's going to change my mind about things so much as much as it's going to like kind of make things a little bit like it's going to crystallize things for me um like like could you imagine like i was thinking about this like could you imagine um uh do the right thing coming out in this kind of culture like and not being able to kind of ruminate on it and sit on it for a bit. <laughs> right. Like like that to me is like the craziest thing is like like the culture now is dictated like or like review culture is dictated by whoever's the quickest person um to post their review, not who's the most articulate about a movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or who can come up with just kind of the craziest take on it. Yes, exactly. You know, the, 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 Armand know, White, the, most... <laughs> the Armand White, the Armand White, like <laughs> the thought process of things. You no, know, man, I, I had to laugh. I, uh, I, I became a, you know, Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. Yes. Congratulations uh, on that. Thank you over the last, uh, whatever it's been week, two yep. weeks. And so the funny thing was I was joking with my friends. I said, you know what I'm going to do is my first act. Uh, as a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic, and they said what? And I said I'm going to go on there and I'm going to give the thumbs down to Hamilton, <laughs> just just as a joke, not because that's what I think, but just like to wreck the score. And I said I'll be the next Armand White, <laughs> and and they had no idea who that was, of course, because yeah. I'm just the super movie nerd and and immersed in in film culture, and and they're much more normal people who you know kind of have a, a surface level. Uh, enjoyment of uh, of cinema and and film culture, and uh, and damn if I didn't see on Twitter uh, that on Friday there were all these articles about Armand White giving Hamilton its only negative review on Rotten Tomatoes. Of course, and, and so I was just like, wow, it's just you know when your contrarian contrarianism uh, becomes so predictable. Uh, you really cease to be an original thinker, uh, you know, and uh, and so anyway, but I thought that was funny because I, I in some uh, weird way inadvertently predicted that just uh, just kidding around with my friends, <laughs> which I love. I love that he is just so fucking predictable. Like I, I used to read his article. I used to read his reviews and get really upset. Um, but then at a certain point, I was just like, he's just gaslighting us. That's that's all he's doing. <laughs> like, he's just being a dick for Dick's sake. I mean, like, like, you yep. know, and yep. I guess there's a space for that. Um, like, I, I mean, I, I, 
I come from like, you know, like we all have our own point of views and our own purposes as reviewers. And I don't know if I've ever said this, but like I like like with this podcast, like my reviews come from what like I, I step into a movie wanting to like the movie. Like, yeah, I, I yeah. Like, like best foot forward. Right. Like, I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> you know, even the most crass cat cash grab like Adam Sandler, Happy Madison production. Like if I'm reviewing it as a critic, I'm going to go in open minded, like is as open minded as I can, because that's the that's the way that I was taught film criticism. But it's like weird because most most critics that you see. Like, there's some that we both follow that we talk about behind the scenes, like, that aren't just Armand White, that literally you can tell, like, clockwork what their review is going to be because they've already made up their mind on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And that's and that's where you cease to be. Uh, I mean, not only do you cease to be objective, that's just the most basic uh, criticism, but you cease to be interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've gone into movies that, you know, you can't help but have a little bit of subconscious thought about things. Oh yeah. And I've gone into movies thinking, Oh my God, this is just going to be awful. And then I left and I was like, Holy shit. I can't believe it. I really enjoyed that. That was great. You know? Yeah. And, and then you're sitting around watching the people giving their obligatory God, that was awful reviews and it's just, you know, it's such a snore. I mean, it's, it's, you know, open your mind up to everything and, you know, you're not going to like some stuff that everybody loves and that's cool. And you're going to love some stuff that everybody else seems to hate and that's cool too. And just, you know, dare to have your opinion. And, no. uh, and, and these days it's, you know, kind of like, uh, the, the opinions get out there so fast. Uh, that you feel like you got to be part of the herd. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, like what I like is, is that like we're in this space that like the B movie aisle, or I'm sorry, the B movie aisle, <laughs> um, the B movie podcast allows us the space to take on whatever we want to, however we want to. There's no, there's no, there, like, you know, there's no formulaic, like, equation that we put together that says that we're going to do this this film next i mean there's things that we plan ahead of time things that we want to cover but ultimately you know things get dictated not by necessarily not by like you know not by current tastes um though we do cover a lot of current movies which like you know leads us to this movie which to me personally like of like all of the all of the of all of the like streaming like covid era movies that have dropped it's it's possibly like my favorite and the best other than uh time to hunt like quite honestly it's like it's a big and i i hate using this word because people get so pissed off messy film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i feel like in its messiness, it's not it's not without purpose, and it doesn't take away from the film itself. It's like messy in the way that life is messy. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, uh, my wife watched this movie with me. Oh, okay. And I was a fan, and she was not. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was really interesting because. We we had a discussion afterward. That's the one thing that you can definitely give this movie is it's it's a conversation starter. 
Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's thought provoking. It, it, it's a conversation starter on issues like political issues, mm-hmm. societal issues, but it's also a, a conversation starter on like filmmaking and filmmaking technique. Mm-hmm. And so when I was talking with her and it was funny because it's just all in how you perceive things, you know, her statement to me was, well, it just seemed kind of amateurish. And I was like, really? I was like, what do you mean? And in essence, what she was saying, what, you know, I mean, I won't go through all of it, but mm-hmm. distilled down, she was saying, I was always aware that I was watching a movie that the, what I would call the spike isms, mm-hmm. you know, his stylistic quirks take her out of the film. Hmm. And so she's like, you know, I was just always aware that I was watching a movie from the kind of collage style of cutting in the pictures of, you know, famous African-American figures or soldiers or what have you uh, to, you know, just different techniques that he employs during the movie. She was like, I was always aware that I was watching a movie and I just found it all distracting. Huh. Okay. So like, yeah, that was a point. That was one of the points that I was going to, I was going to bring up, uh, later on, uh, was the technique of it all. But like, let's get into that now. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, and so it was funny. I was like, well, you know, but that's, I said, you know, it's not that he doesn't know what he's doing. I said, it's a stylistic choice. Mm -hmm. And she goes, I understand. You know, she's like, I'm not saying that Spike Lee is an amateur. She said, I'm just saying, I don't like that style. She said it plays to me like, you know, somebody who's making, you know, a film school film or something that is just very in your face, that it's not very subtle, uh, that, you know, the dialogue is speeches, that, you know, just the didactic nature of it. She was not a fan. Huh. That's that's Um, interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, whereas I, you know, I, I thought it was great. I mean, it, I will tell you this. I, I'm, I don't usually play the ranking game. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, this is greater than this, is greater than this, and all that kind of stuff. Because to me, if it's a talented filmmaker, they all have different merits. Yes. Uh, I would say I like Black Klansman more. Mm-hmm. But I still enjoy this film a lot. No, absolutely. Um, Like, it's interesting because, like, what what your wife found as distracting, I found um, like was the meat and potatoes of the movie. Like the, the way that he makes, like he makes divergent point. It's not, they're not divergent points, but he uses divergent um, techniques to bring you, to bring a point home that he wants to make to you. Like I liked that style because it's something that he's always kind of worked with um, in his in his work. Like I just recently started a rewatch of all of his films. Like uh, I mean I'm not like I don't like I don't know if I've ever said where I stand with Spike Lee, but he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Like I'm talking like top five favorite filmmakers. Like he's right. like that kind of filmmaker for me. I saw. Like, I saw Do the Right Thing at a very young age when I really shouldn't have. And right. it kind of... Yeah, that of, was college for me. Oh, God. Like, I was... Yeah. I, I, I saw it the year it was released on VHS. Like, okay, so, like, like just as, a, like, a weird kind of thing so that you, you guys know where I'm coming from. So, when the movie was released in the summer of 89, um, like, you got to remember that summer of 89 was Lethal Weapon 2, Batman... 
the abyss it was like all of these big major movies it was like the first planned like it feels like 89 was the first planned programmed summer of what would eventually become like our current summer blockbuster kind of thing except for COVID-19 has kind of reverted that but it came out that that summer and I remember yeah that was the summer leading into my junior year of college okay it was I was 11 years old that tells people like our age gap um and I remember seeing the video the music video the fight the power um Mm -hmm. public enemy video and I also remember Spike because he was uh Mars Blackman uh, the character yeah, yeah. on the, yeah. the Nike ads. So like yep. that combined with that made me want to see it. Like I had no idea of what it was. And so of course, when I asked to go see it, what do you think my parents like, like, like middle, like, you know, working class guys, like my dad is white. My mom is Mexican and Japanese. Like this kid wants to see this, like what's been touted as this highly volatile film, right? (laughs) Of course they told me, fuck no. So what ends up happening is I instantly like this instantly becomes this thing that I want to see and cut to like six months later. Um, a friend, of course, like anything, like a friend has a VHS dubbed of it. Like, you know, like parents rented it, they dubbed it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then he hands me the tape and I watch it. And simultaneously, I was instantly a Spike Lee fan for whatever reason. It just wired me and it literally traumatized me. But it was a trauma that I couldn't talk to anybody about, if that makes any sense. Because if I had told my parents that I'd seen this movie, of course ass whipping would ensue right uh (laughs) so it it forced me to search out things about it so like in an era where you couldn't search for things like we had a bunch of magazines so it made me like try to find answers like i I mean you know like i was the kid that used to record uh siskel and ebert because of the fact that you know you just wanted to have those reviews and so like i had to go back to my siskel and ebert review to see what they said about it and then like going into like like old like you know entertainment weeklies newsweeks like i i used to be a really big hoarder when i was a little kid because i loved (laughs) i loved reviews so like i would cut out reviews like i would cut out just created a new show man child (laughs) hoarders (laughs) you've struck gold Um, but I ended up finding out a little bit more about it and kind of calming myself down, um, in regards to this. But like, since then I've been a huge fan of Spike and I've gone back to like, kind of watch some of like all of his films. And the thing that I've noticed is that style has always been there. He's just refined it a lot more. Like even with, she's got to have it. There are those moments, like the moment in the middle of the film where it goes into color after being in black and white and mm-hmm. how like the characters talk to the screen. Like he's, it's interesting. Like I, I would like to know what your opinion is about it is like how he uses these, um, these kind of subjective techniques. It, yeah. You know, and, and, and like I would tell you that like, and, and I can kind of, I think I can put myself kind of in the head of my wife and what she is saying mm-hmm. uh, when she says those things is like she loved Black Klansmen. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, the way that the historical information is presented in Black Klansmen 
is woven into the narrative. Mm -hmm. You have like this, this black fraternity or sorority or activist group or what have you meeting. And it's like Harry Belafonte is a guest speaker. Yes. And so you have him telling the story of, you know, lynchings and, and things that went on, which honestly I thought like, you know, supporting actor worthy in that film. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and it was cross cut with some of the white supremacist ceremonies and stuff like that, but it was woven in narratively. Mm -hmm. And so I think what she finds is she finds this kind of collage technique that Spike Lee will use where he cuts in photos Mm -hmm. or, real world footage or stuff like that just kind of bam cuts it right into the narrative and then bam you're right back to the characters i think she finds that kind of stuff jarring like some kind of cinematic aside that just intrudes into the film okay and so i think that uh that you know if it's narratively woven into the film uh i, I don't think it it bothers her as much and and it's it's you know and it's kind of like you know, when you sit around and watch some lengthy two and a half hour movie and at the end of it, you're like, oh, my God, it was like I totally forgot that that was a movie. I thought it was like immersed in a documentary or something. Mm-hmm. And and you won't have that reaction to a Spike Lee movie because it's very obviously a film. Yes, absolutely. And, and so to me, you know, I find it inventive, mm-hmm. uh, energetic. You know, I find him to kind of have it's like he never outgrew his film student love of the medium. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like that's, and, that's and, definitely a and, point. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes through, but yeah. it's like, to me, it's not, it's not amateur or something like that. It's, it's just enthusiasm for the medium. I mean, it's like you can just feel in a way that he's excited to be making a movie. And yeah. so that kind of energy to me just kind of jumps off the screen. And so that's why I always find his stuff so interesting. And, uh, and you know, and his filmography is just so varied. He's done so many different things that you can't say that he's some kind of, you know, one note, one beat kind of filmmaker. And so, uh, so I thought, you know, The Five Bloods was, um, was solid. I mean, I, I thought it was really, really good. No, absolutely. It's... What I loved about it is how it kind of jumped. It, it it kept on jumping genres, like it like it was at a certain point. It was one kind of movie. Then it become it evolves into another, and then it evolves into another, and then another. And it's never not the same movie. It's ju- and it's not vignettes in the movie. It's the same movie throughout. It's just it's like an opera. It's different movements within the film. Um, that's taking you different places. Like at a certain point, it's like, you know, it's this reunion film and then it becomes a, like a travelogue film that's mixed in with, uh, like this, uh, this sort of like, um, you know, political discussion. It was like, it's like that, that section of the film where they go on the journey to find, uh, to find Norm, um, is it really reminded me of, um, get on the bus. Uh, his movie about the Million Man March and right, and right. how. God, I mean, I guess you could use the word didactic. It was like you know this whole thing about varying opinions and people like like people having these conversations that necessarily, 
um, aren't shown on screen. Like the like the one of the most striking moments for me in the entire film is when they stop in that port in um, in that smaller like water port town in Vietnam, and uh, Paul Deroy Lindo's uh, character is how he feels is he's being verbally assaulted by this like guy who's trying to sell him a chicken and it escalates into this huge thing. And it's something that you've never seen before and how it plays out is so just kind of, it's, it's as, it's as harrowing as anything that you see after that. That's like, that's a trigger for violence. Like anything that happens violently, Mm -hmm. it's just as, like I said, it's just as harrowing and, and, like emotionally like like disconcert like concerning um that you could that you ever see because of the emotional violence that's being perpetrated on both yeah. ends and well, uh, you know it's 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 almost you know it's kind of like i don't even know what you would call it uh, as far as the hatred is is concerned, you know, there's there's racism, but racism is based on the idea of you don't know this person as an individual. Yeah. And for some reason that you hate them, though you don't know them. And uh, and that's why everybody talks about it being such a learned behavior. Mm hmm. But in this, it's not, you know, he looks at him and sees an Asian face and hates him just for that. It is this this shared history. Yes. You know, it's people that looked like you spent a long time trying to kill me. And that Asian, uh, the Vietnamese actors or characters, you know, view of it is somebody who looked just like you killed my parents. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, you know, necessarily a race-based thing as much as it is the history of this conflict carrying over to modern day, you know, because, and, and they don't portray it for you. It's not so on the nose, but, you know, we have seen enough, you know, Spike is also trusting in our knowledge of other war movies. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, like with the little kid coming in begging, and yeah. and him kind of being leery. Well, you know, I mean, think how many times have you seen, you know, can I shine your shoes and they run off like they need to go get something and the shoe shine box explodes. Exactly. You know, and so it's 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 born of that trepidation. Like, you know, like somewhere along the way, I saw somebody trying to sell a chicken uh, to one of my fellow soldiers and then he shot him. Or something like that, mm-hmm. and so it's not uh, it's not uh, a racist kind of thing as much as it's experiential. You know, I've been here, I've done this before, and this didn't turn out well. So you know, back the hell up. Yeah. You know that kind of thing. And the thing is, is like uh, like what I like about <laughs> what I like so much about uh, the way that they do it is they they put all of that on Paul. Like there's there there's this huge tepidation with everything that that he has. Like it's it, it's very interesting. Like his like Deroy Lindo. I I don't think that I can think of a a movie or like a film or like or a TV series where I've seen a more complex character that he's had to play, and the way that he plays it with the the multiple layers of guilt 
anger, uh, remorse for multiple things in his life. It's 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 one of those it's one of those performances that changes like people that weren't in the D Roy Lindo game. Like it changes your opinion about him. If you've already, like if you already love the guy, it makes you love him more. And it makes you feel like, um, that he's, he's been given this like meaty role. And thank God he has, because so many other movies that he's been in, he's not had that. And he still made a meal out of them. Right. You know, um, it, but it's it's very interesting how the film plays with those conventions, but also plays through like it plays the like even though it's a it's a I hate to use the word ensemble, but it is kind of an ensemble. But ultimately, as the film as the film gets to its third act, it really crystallizes and becomes about Paul and becomes about his journey and his like. Um, his need for uh, like his searching for something that's beyond the gold, the gold and norm, uh, like Norm's body. Like there's more to it than that, which I I really love. I love the fact that, um, I could say like we could say what the plot is, where it's these five Vietnam vets that like go back to Vietnam to bring back their 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 comrade in arms their kind of de facto leader a uh, norm played by Chadwick uh, Chadwick Boseman but also to bring back gold that they buried with uh they buried along with him but even though I've told you that plot outline like the meat of the story the emotional hook of the story I still have not talked about yeah yeah, and and you know, and I think you're talking about Delroy Lindo and his character. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, people have a very individual reaction to being in the military, being in war. Uh, you know, some people have PTSD type problems, uh, like Delroy Lindo's character does. It you know haunts them. They they've never really left the war, even though they left yeah. the country. And then you have other people who somehow manage to just kind of, I mean, I'm sure that they think about it, but, you know, they, they manage to pack it away somehow and move on and, mm-hmm. and you know, have families and have careers and, and, and just kind of compartmentalize it. And so to me, this this group of individuals, in a way, kind of represents the spectrum of those reactions. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. You have some that are on one end, you have Delroy Lindo that's on the other end, and then you kind of have the guys who are in the middle. Uh, and and so Delroy Lindo is is the, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of, he's kind of the Kurtz character ultimately. Yes. Uh, from, you know, Heart of Darkness, uh, you know, the Marlon Brando kind of character from Apocalypse Now. I mean, those references are, are intentional. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and we just slowly watch him kind of come unraveled. You know, some people can go back to where all of this happened and make peace with it. Some people go back to where all of this happens and it just comes alive for them again, and and they become a part of it again. And that's what happens to him. Yeah, and it's it's this like it's the slow descent into madness. That yep. you just kind of look at and go, wow, like, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where it, it's, 
like his story is not a it's not this like story of (laughs) of like this is a this is a tragedy more than anything else like his his part of the story is a tragedy um whereas like um like it's interesting how like each of the characters have this sort of arc to like things that uh like the things that happen throughout the film um played by like four like really great like there's not a bum performance but i mean when you when you realize that it's like deroy lindo clark peters who's the like who i feel is the co-lead as otis um isaiah whitlock jr as melvin and then norman lewis as eddie like the four guys the four the four of the five bloods um yep and we get a get a mini uh wire reunion union yep with with isaiah whitlock jr and clark peters um who like you know of course isaiah whitlock jr has to do the his (laughs) famous his famous phrase which i mean i don't care like if i see him in a movie i i want him to do that i want him to do the she like it's just it's just something that it's just something that like it it's not it's not anything other than like i just love that he has this like it's this it's just this kind of way to take the air out of the room that's like kind of great um and i see to me that's a that's like another example of of spike of yeah but it but it's like you're gonna fall in one of two camps you're gonna fall in the that's distracting why would that character do that you know if you want to be kind of the literalist person yeah or if you just want to be the Spike Lee having fun making a movie and you're along for this ride, then, you know, it works perfectly. No, absolutely. And so it just really depends kind of, you know, what mindset you come to the material with. Well, yeah. And then it's also like then he does things for people that so like there's the 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 people that are the literalists but then there are people like you and i who understand that he's playing with conventions and it's like he throws rope-a-dopes at you to coin of like you know a phrase like where Mm -hmm. like okay so like the melanie theory paul walter hauser and uh jasper uh uh Pauken's characters, the French or the Dutch uh, mine, uh, right. mine relievers. Um, he's playing on the fact that you've watched Black Klansmen with Hauser and uh, mm-hmm. Pauken as like the most like one, the stupidest racist of all time and one of the most insepid racists of all time. Right. And you're thinking that these guys, like you're playing, he's playing with your conventions of these, these kind of character types, um, which I love because it's like, he knows how to play you like that. And he knows that like, this is a film and okay, well I'm going to show you these guys who before in my last movie, these guys were pieces of shit and I'm going to present them in the best light possible, but I know how your conventions are going to work, especially with, um, especially with Seppo, the guy, uh, the, the guy played right. by, uh, Pyokin and, um, because he was so effective, but then to see how it all turns out, it's kind of funny, like, because he's totally playing with your conventions. Um, uh, it, it is really kind of great how he kind of can do that. Or he doesn't even play with conventions at all with, like, somebody like Clark Peters as Otis, who becomes, like, the broken heart of the film. 
Like, right. and it's just like, you're just happy that, you know, like, like, you know who Clark, like, if you've watched The Wire, you know exactly who the fuck Clark Peters is. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, and if you haven't seen this movie and you're a fan of The Wire and his work, then you definitely need to see this film because he's given this kind of, he's given something that, that I feel like is not often given to an older black, black actor, which is the role of like, not only like a romantic lead, but also the hero of the piece. Like, yeah. and to watch him evolve in the watch, like the, the journey that he takes in his arc, it's, it's the, it's the heart of the film, even though Dior Lindo's characters also the heart, but it's a different kind of heart. It's the, it, it it's the the shattering of a heart it's the, the the realization of things and um like clark peters is otis and his storyline is like the the hope of of what could happen moving forward yeah no exactly and uh, and you know it's uh it's it's one of those things like we all have relatives friends somebody that has served in some kind of armed conflict, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the older I get, the less it becomes uh world war two and the more it becomes Vietnam. And then not too long, we won't have too many more Vietnam survivors around. It'll be Gulf uh, war. And it will be the, yeah, the Gulf war and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in essence, you know, Delroy Lindo's character is, is kind of giving literal voice to the baggage that those people carry uh, because you have so many of those folks that don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my law partner's dad was in, in Vietnam and, uh, and he didn't talk about it. I mean, occasionally he will make some kind of comment, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it came up more when he started to have all kinds of uh, dermatological issues because of the agent orange. Yeah. And so he was having all these little, you know, precancerous things taken off of him. And and one time he said something to me like, well, you know, when, when they dropped that Agent Orange, it just ran off of us like rainwater. Yep. And, uh, and, and so occasionally you'd get a little glimpse of something, but overall, you know, not talking a lot about it. And so some of those people who are not talking a lot about it are, you know, still filled with it. And that's kind of the Delroy Lindo character. It is, it's never left him. And, uh, and of course it's, it's never left him in part for a spoilerish reason that we won't bring up, mm-hmm. but you also get the idea that even if that incident hadn't happened, he still might be exactly where he is. Absolutely. He would definitely be like, it, it's like, uh, there's a, there's a character, there's another character bit and a, I wouldn't, it, it, it's a joke, but it's, but it evolves into not a joke because it's, it's, it, it becomes, what I love about Spike is that he makes it an instant joke, but then he never backs down from it as to who Paul is as a character. And, um, and it kind of defines 
like the character in a really w- interesting way and um some self-hatred and self-loathing um that's very interesting that's peppered throughout the film because they do have a lot of talk of current politics because it takes place now um which actually allows me to bring up a pretty um interesting point that I wanted to uh, talk to you about that I don't feel is really dis- has been discussed which was um the use of uh, of the actors not digitally de-aging them but just using them in the Vietnam scenes um I know what my feelings are about it but I'd actually like to hear you talk about it not just not from the practical budget standpoint because so like I watched a Barry uh Barry Jenkins and Spike Lee had a conversation about the film afterwards like you know like after like the next week you could attend it and stuff and I attended it and like he talked about it but he they talked about it from a budgetary reason and like literally Spike Lee said the reason why we like he's like there is one big reason why we didn't do it which was it would have cost me 100 million dollars <laughs> and that just took the air out of the room. You you to see Barry Jenkins' face because he was like, you know, so why didn't you guys just do the digital de aging thing with like that mm-hmm. that Scorsese did? And he goes, Well, I'll give you I'll give you an idea. He told us the budget, and then he's like, Now add a hundred million dollars to it. That's yeah, why I'll give you a hundred million reasons why. Exactly. <laughs> but um I was wondering how you felt about that. Rather than casting actors younger and having them portray, like, how did you feel about the older actors portraying their characters literally 45 years earlier? Yeah, you know, it it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. It, uh, and, and it worked for me in the sense of, and, you know, like I said, every now and then I sound like I'm freaking father time on here. Uh, or, or something, but it's just cause I'm, I'm the older person on the podcast. I'm 51 at this point, but you know, like when I think back to that age, when I think back to being 18, I almost can't visualize myself or recognize that individual because you just change, you know, you, you change with life. I mean, hopefully you become wiser and smarter and things like <laughs> that. And it's not just a physical change. And so I think if you consider these flashbacks to be in the heads of these characters, that they're going through these woods uh, and jungle and everything and flashing back to these events that happened before, uh, that, you know, you could you could accept the idea of they don't remember their younger selves in that kind of detail. And mm-hmm. so it, it, I took it as kind of almost like a, a, a trick of memory. That, you know, because of what happens with Chadwick Boseman's character, I mean, obviously he's dead. They're going back to get his remains. Uh, that's not a spoiler. He's forever young in their brain. Yes, exactly. Because that's the only version of him they ever knew. Because uh, he didn't live to get older like they did. But they have stayed connected with each other. They've seen each other over the years. It's clear from just the things that they say to each other, questions they ask each other. Uh, they know about each other's lives and stuff like that. And so I just kind of took it as, you know, I knew why. I mean, you know, the budgetary issues and mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't want to to cast all younger versions and basically have two different casts and everything like that. And so, uh, but I took it as, 
you know, kind of like if you were thinking about back then with people that you are still keeping up with, you know, you might in your mind kind of substitute in your older selves for your younger selves because that's who you now know. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you almost don't remember uh, that younger self. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always played uh, uh, played drums uh, throughout my life and played in some bands and stuff like that. And so when we were cleaning out my mom's house, I came across some pictures of me playing drums when I was in high school. And I mean, you know, to me, I don't even look like the same person. And I'm like, wow, that is so weird. You know, I don't ever even remember, you know, being that young, being that thin, <laughs> being whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so to me, that's kind of what that's like is, you know, the, the guy who died young is forever implanted in their brain as, as young. Uh, but then the rest of it, they just kind of see through the lens of now. No, abs- and, and, absolutely. And so that's why it really didn't bother me. I thought at first, and it's hard to say at first because you don't know what order they shot everything in, mm-hmm. but it seemed like in a few of the action sequences, uh, they were kind of maybe keeping away from their faces yeah, uh, and, and intentionally trying not to draw attention to it. Uh, but I didn't really think that they needed to disguise it. But then again, it could also be that, you know, these guys are in their 60s and their 70s and they don't move like somebody who is 18. That is true. So they may not have been avoiding showing their faces uh, as much as they didn't want to have prolonged shots of them running through the woods because it just might not have been believable. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I liked the choice because, like you said, memory is a very facile thing. And, um, you know, how you remember things is not necessarily as that particular person, but somebody kind of almost reviewing that uh, that era as the person that you are now. Um, uh, But it was like I definitely liked the choice because it allowed a a continuity there that I don't think that. Like, to be perfectly honest, like, like we could we could have like we had the discussion about the Irishman, about how, like, at first it was very distracting. Like, you can go back to our mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese episode and listen to the Irishman and what we talked about, right. the digitally de-aging thing. Um, and it took a for me, it took a while. Like the first. Yeah, it did the, me too. Yeah, the first the the first go around on that movie, it took me a while to actually kind of get used to the younger versions because they looked so plastic. Um, but then it becomes yeah. just the part of the nature. But with this, it was a less it was less um it was less time being distracted and more just like, oh, okay, this is a technique. Like this is like a like a storytelling technique, and I can get behind it. Um, uh, but it was definitely an like I liked the choice, but it was definitely a choice. Like there's sometimes where things are not choices, but this is definitely a choice, and I like that about Spike. He makes choices. Right. He doesn't like even like in his movies that you may not you may not appreciate or like. You can definitely appreciate the fact that he makes decisions. Like most film, like a lot of filmmakers will not make decisions. They won't make choices. They'll just right. let things happen and be very inactive with their films. And the thing I love about Spike is that he makes he makes choices. Sometimes they can be very bold. Sometimes they can, like, collapse a film. Uh, there are a few films that, I mean, like, you know, like any filmmaker, there's few films with Spike that I'm just, I'm not on, like, I just, 
I'm not a big fan of. And maybe that's because I haven't seen them recently, but the initial viewing of them, I'm like, yeah, nope, doesn't work for me. I guess we're just going to have to go on. Um, <laughs> but this one, like, you know, this is something I feel like this movie, I feel like is going to be a like, it's going to be one of those films that when I go back to, I'm definitely going to have more and more affection for. Um, yeah. I think that I will like it even more on a second viewing because, you know, you get the first viewing you always, in my opinion, if the film has gripped you at all mm. is you're always interested in the narrative. You're interested in what's going to happen to these people. And, and so you're very much concentrating on outcome. Mm -hmm. And then, so to me, when I see it a second time, you start to notice even more of kind of the visual touches and the editing choices uh, and things like that. The, one of the things that I like the most about Spike Lee is, you know, he makes full use of the visual medium. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm a fan of the Slash Film podcast. Yes. And Dave Chin once made uh, a comment that he said, you know, I think you when, when you're watching something, you have to ask yourself, why is it a movie? You know, in other words, why isn't it a short story? Why isn't it a radio play? Why isn't it a, a novel? Why isn't, you know, why is it that this particular idea and creation needed to be a film? And so I think that that's a great way to, to look at things and say, how are you making use of the medium? You know, if it was just people standing around exchanging dialogue. That could have been any, that could have been a stage play. You know, what are you doing to make use of the medium? And so the one thing that you can always say uh, with Spike Lee is he makes great use of the medium. And I actually think to, to kind of wind back around to what my wife had had to say is it's almost like her complaint is he overuses the medium, you know, <laughs> too many, you know, too many visual flourishes and little inserted uh, still photos and little things like this. And so she finds it distracting, whereas I just find it to be uniquely him. Absolutely. No, and, that's, and that's, that's a what good, I like yeah. is is giving it his stamp. No, absolutely. Like he's not, he's like, like the reason, like you kind of put a, a very big like stamp, like, like not stamp, but like a very big like circle around it. Uh, what I, what I find in filmmakers that are, <clears throat> um, that are, that, that are my favorite filmmakers is that they have a visual authority to them and there's right. <clears throat> like you know like you said like dave chen said like why 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 does this need to be a movie like you know and every time that you see a spike lee film or like you know a steven spielberg film or um even like a david fincher film like there's a like you can always say yeah there's a visual reason why and there's this visual authority to the to their work that is not only like like what I love about Spike Lee and this is what I love about all the filmmakers that I really kind of like I have I have affection for is that if you if you cut out a minute of any of his films and you show it to like you show it to me <laughs> exactly. it's distinctly 
a Spike Lee film. Well, like just like if I if you cut uh, if you cut a minute out of a Spielberg film, it's distinctly a Spielberg film, or it's distinctly yep. a David Fincher, or even a David Lynch film. Um, you know, or a Kira Kurosawa film. Like there, there's a visual stamp. There's a like you said, like there's a there's a style to it that you can definitely you definitely understand that this is this is the filmmaker that you're watching and you know some people like that and some people don't but with spike lee it's it's a it's a leave it's a it's it's a either take it or leave it kind of proposition um right and it definitely like i like it here even though like you said like the the degree at which it's done here is pretty it's 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 almost experimental in the way that and expressionistic in the way that it's working like like somebody that's telling a story with pop-ups with like visual yep. pop-ups um well and then you factor in the what three or four different aspect ratios yes depending on you know where you are what time you were in things like that uh so that adds to it and so you know i know what my wife means when she discusses kind of all of the little in her mind, they're kind of like visual ticks. Uh, whereas in, in my mind, they're, you know, spikely touches. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I, I get like, I, like I never, I could never fault anybody for not liking a Spike Lee film. If it's that, that they're looking at, because it is sometimes some are greater than others. Like some, some mm-hmm. have that kind of visual confrontation that people are just like, I want my films to be films like, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, like, and, and I think, you know, she finds the dialogue a little preachy. That mm-hmm. was her other thing is, you know, a little too on the nose directly saying to people exactly what the themes of the movie are, uh, and things like that. So, uh, in, in a way, I think, you know, her comment would be maybe greater amounts of subtlety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and, and the key, and the thing is, is uh, I think he does that in other movies. Yeah. Like that would be where I go back to Black Klansman and say, I think that film is a little more nuanced. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very in your face about what it's about, but it's in your face about the subject matter. It's not necessarily screaming its themes at you. Exactly. And so that was what she found in this one that, you know, it's, it's almost like, there's this undercurrent of kind of anger that, you know, this message has got to get out there and it has got to be understood. And so there isn't going to be any subtlety or nuance to this whatsoever. I'm just going to hit you over the head with it. Now, I thought that it was more delicate in the word. I would say it's more delicate than that. Yeah. Uh, whereas she thought that it was, you know, kind of way on the nose throughout a lot of the film though we'll tell you uh she thought the third act was really good so i, I think the the build-up for her uh was maybe a little too on the nose but from the point of the you know delroy lindo monologue as he uh slashes his way uh through the jungle uh from that point forward i think she thought was really good absolutely um and it's and like you know that third act you cannot you cannot deny that it's just this it, it be it, like it like that's where it all comes together and it becomes mm-hmm. this like really 
like it, it becomes this very verbose like like god I, I hate to use the word kick-ass action film but it kind of is it's it's just like this kick-ass action film that like you don't expect it to be that but it totally is that um right which right. you know you, you you gotta love you gotta love spike like dabbling into things that um like what i love is that he's like you said he's always like he's always trying to tr- he's always willing to do different things and figure out what he wants to do and like in figuring out new genres to like kind of test himself in. Um, I think he does that even like, you know, I think that he does that more than most filmmakers, like, like established filmmakers. Um, If you look at all of those genres that he does, he's very like what I found was like the thing that I found about this film was, is that this felt like more of a, this felt like really like a like I know this sounds weird, but it, it felt like a Howard Hawks film in a lot of ways. Like Yeah, no, I can see that. With the with the pacing, the way that it's it's not a quick film. It's like it's not like a Mm-mm. like it's not it's it doesn't it's not propulsive. It's very it has a leisurely pace, but the pace is not something that you mind. It's character over it's character over plot and story. Like you're gonna eventually get there. But before you do, you know that you're going to get to know these characters. And like I think that's the best thing about a Howard Hawks film. And I feel like it it feels like a Howard Hawks film um, in in that kind of way. Um, and, and, you know, and I think the the third act, you know, I think a lot of people might say, oh, it really picks up then or it really gains a head of steam or what have you. But I kind of tend to agree with you that I don't really know that the tempo of the film changes. It's just now you're invested. And so you've got this kind of feeling of dread in that third act. Yes. That that inner suspense inside of you because you're like, oh, God, you know, I just know all these dudes aren't going to survive this thing. And, you know, who's going to die and who's going to make it. And, oh, I like this character. And, oh, I like this character. And I hope nothing happens to this guy. And and so when those kind of things kick in, I think it, it may not be as much that the back third of the film becomes intentionally more suspenseful i think the stakes just go up because you've gotten to know these characters absolutely like that's exactly what it is um more than anything else um uh yeah it's, and that's it's rarer than you would think i mean how many movies have you watched and said oh you know that was good but inwardly you were kind of like but i don't really give a shit what happened at the end it was just kind of a fun little ride <laughs> there's and, so many uh, so yeah, many exactly things. exactly so uh so but this was was different to me i was i was invested in the characters and you know was interested in seeing how it was going to come out and and uh and so to me the the third act really you know, elevated it, uh, to me. I mean, I was enjoying it and thought that it was good, but then after the third act, I was like, wow, that, that, that really landed. That was great. Yeah, it definitely, it it definitely was. Um, and again, all intentional, like, I feel like, like it has to be stated that, that something that I've noticed a lot in, in like, in like, like clickbait articles recently is this whole thing of like, like films don't know what they're doing. Um, no, they absolutely know what they're doing. 
Shut the unless, fuck up about that. <laughs> unless it's Game of Thrones and somebody accidentally left the Dasani bottle in the frame. <laughs> it, it was intentional. You know, I mean, these guys have been doing this for so long uh, that there isn't, you know, something in a shot that isn't supposed to be there. Yeah. Or something that is done in a something that in the story is not intentional. Like I'm, I'm really sick of people saying that stuff. And like, I've seen some criticism leveled at this film that it doesn't know what it's doing. You know, it absolutely fucking knows what it's doing. Like there's an intent for everything in this film and the way that if, if the third act were like, this is the thing is that like, I've noticed like people have like said, well, it, it doesn't work the first two acts, but then it works perfectly in the third. no, it's working in the <laughs> the first and second right. act, and that's the reason why the third act works. If the third act exactly. didn't work, then there's something wrong in the first and the second act. And I, like to me, yeah. they like what Spike is doing in this film is covering up so much of what we classically consider story narrative with mm-hmm. just character, just throwing so much character there. And like, like, you know, like speeches and things like that. He's, he's basically just like covering up the fact that you like you, these traditional first, second and third acts. Like he's just basically throwing so much at it that you're not realizing that what you're seeing is a traditional arc that ends up being in the third act. Everything pays off. I mean, something, something as simple as something that I, uh, that Melvin Isaiah Whitlock's character says um, in a Vietnam flash flashback in the first part or the like in in the middle section of the film that comes back way back to play that that happens in the last mm-hmm. act that you're mm-hmm. like ah like, Ooh, what a callback <laughs> yeah um yeah you know yeah, exactly and you know, and the beauty of the setup on that is you never suspect it no. You don't. Yeah, like, yeah, you don't. I mean, you just don't go. Oh, well, now I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, not a bit, not a bit. Because so, it's layered uh, upon layer upon layer yeah. of of just like you know character. Um, you know, it, or something like um, you, you know, it's it's just it's it's very interesting the way that it's it's made, but it's also like if if somebody tries to call into question like how that happened, it's all intentional. Like that's the thing that I always kind of come back to, like when I was thinking about this film um, and how it was constructed uh, because it's, it's a hell of a, like when you really think about how it's built and like the, 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 the constant ascent uh, that it's built on to where it peaks like it doesn't pe- like most film peak uh, most films peak around the end like you know if you're talking traditionally they peak at the end of the second act and everything goes downhill this movie like peaks mid third act um if it's yeah. if it's tri- yeah, like definitely. mid to like the very end of the of the third act like there's a postscript in it this is very much like a like i was telling somebody it's like a novel like this is like i know a lot of people like talk about oh well it was very novelistic no this is very much like a novel like if spike wrote this as a novel like people would be praising it because of its form because like there's an additional like say 10 minutes at the end that 
I feel like some people are going to look at it as unnecessary, but I feel it's absolutely necessary um, because it kind of gives it, it gives it, it distinguishes it from between what the tre- uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre is and a riff on the Treasure of Sierra Madre. Is there anything else that you feel like we should add to this conversation? Because I mean, it's, it's, we've said a lot. <laughs> we, and we've given a lot to kind of, uh, for people to kind of like, you know, um, chew on for this film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the one thing that I was wondering while I was watching it, it's just really kind of a superficial thing to think about, but, uh, I was wondering would Netflix have given this any kind of theatrical presence. Because it looks so good. Yeah. I mean, it looks so good. I mean, I was happy that I have my, you know, huge, you know, Sony uh, and everything to enjoy it on. But there was still part of me that was sitting there thinking, man, it would have been nice to see this in a theater. And then my thought was, you know, it's not necessarily that it's not in a theater because of the pandemic. It might not have been in the theater at all. You know, we we don't know what Netflix's plans might have been uh, for the movie. I, I would, I, like, I hoped, like, when I saw it, like, like any Spike film, it's something that's designed for the big screen, um, though it feels like it's, like, it's designed visually for the big screen, but it's also designed in the way that it's structured and the content of it is for repeated viewings like Netflix. So I, I would hope that they would have done, like, so, like, like as we know like they were in the process of of buying some theaters so that they could start their own exclusive runs on things before the pandemic hit and right. from what i understood this was supposed to premiere at can if i yes. was not mistaken yeah, like because he was going to be the president of the jury this yeah, year it was going to be outside yeah. of can but it was going to premiere at can like i don't like let me clarify i was saying that it was going to premiere it was going to play outside of competition um so my thought process was that i think that it honestly was going to what there was going to be some kind of theatrical because like I think that they're they're gonna they were gonna want to push the way that that they did with um, Scorsese yep. for awards, but now with everything that's happening now, they don't even need to do that. They can just push for him in a different way. But I'm hoping that like there's a bunch of movies. I don't know about you, but there's a bunch bunch of movies that I'm writing down that in five years, if they do retrospectives on things uh, when the theaters are back <laughs> right. open, that I'll be able to see. And this is one of them because, like you said, like the visually, it's it's stunning, and the way that the visuals work, um, and the different aspect ratios. That's something that's kind of designed to be in a theater to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so like, yeah, and then props to, um. Spike Lee and his like it's kind of funny to like I love when he decides to work with a different cinematographer and uh Thomas Newton Siegel is somebody who I feel like works like is is like is like like brings him back to the kind of visual like acuity that he had with Ernest Dickerson in this film mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that kind of like like-minded it feel like it's always felt like Spike has always been like visually, I, I hate to say this, but sometimes visually ahead of his cinematographers. And whenever he has somebody that is 
at his level, like Ernest Dickerson or like uh, Thomas Newton Siegel, it becomes this whole thing of like it's a sharper film visually. Yeah, yeah, you can imagine it's more of a collaboration yes. than him trying to completely dictate what it'll look like. Exactly, exactly. And and here it definitely, yeah, like that was the one thing like, you know, again, me watching on my big Sony TV, the, the biggest regret was not being able to see this at like someplace in Hollywood with the best surround sound and the biggest screen possible. Because yep. I, I was... I was sitting there watching it thinking, you know, Netflix sent me this coffee table book of the Irishman last year around award season. Yep. I hope they send me one for this. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I could only imagine, um, you know, I really do hope. And also, additionally, I hope that the Netflix criterion um, mm-hmm. deal mm-hmm. expands to this. I don't see yeah. why it wouldn't. I mean, yeah, it should. you've got you've got I mean, if you've got. Scorsese doing his Criterion version of The Irishman. I don't see why, because Spike has had like has things in the Criterion collection. Why he shouldn't be in yep. in that too? So, Maybe he'll give us a three and a half hour director's cut. Oh wow, that would be pretty awesome. <laughs> Actually, that would be really awesome. <laughs> um, but with that, uh, where can people find you this week on the social medias? Yeah, absolutely. On Twitter, I can be found at mscott underscore phillips. Uh, and uh, then uh, my video reviews can be found at wrbl.com. I just reviewed the new documentary on uh, HBO, Welcome to Chechnya. Uh, and then uh, my written work can be found at the movie album. Absolutely. Um, you can find the movie aisle and the B movie podcast on social media through Instagram and Twitter. Uh, the Twitter is more of a landing spot for both of them. Like just giving you reviews to look at, uh, like the reviews from the site. And then also when the podcast drops, uh, if you want to see more social media activity, you probably want to go to Instagram, but, uh, Twitter and Instagram for the B movie aisle and the the uh i'm sorry the b movie podcast i keep on doing that dude uh and the movie aisle are the same thing um uh so uh, movie aisle is the movie aisle um no lines no dashes and then the b movie podcast is b movie pod the letter b the word movie the word pod all together no lines no dashes um twitter and instagram so you can find us there uh where we've got a bunch of reviews coming up and out and you know we may be shut in but the the site is not not without content so definitely check it out there um and uh next week we will be back with something just as interesting and entertaining to talk about we'll talk to you guys soon